At this point, we have the honor of welcoming Dr. Jeff Riddle back to this pulpit to deliver our third and final lecture, The Accuracy of Scripture. He will be opening up for his text, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 through 11, which is the proof text for the phrase vulgar translation in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8. Dr. Riddle. Once again, if you have your Bibles, let's take them and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll read uh, this text aloud, uh, verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 11. Let me invite you as you're able again, let's stand together. And here uh, within this passage, the Apostle uh, Paul writes, now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise ye except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. May God bless today, once again, the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you prayed for your disciples of old uh, that they would be sanctified by thy truth, and you declared that thy word is truth. And so today, O oh God, uh, we would hope for uh, that word to strengthen us and to sanctify us and set us apart and use this ordinary means of teaching uh, to strengthen and edify us in the faith. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So we are assembled yet again under our conference theme, Holy Scripture and the Reformation. And in this session, our topic will be the accuracy of Scripture. To begin to get some grasp on this topic, we want to return to our touchstone passage from the Confession, chapter 1 and paragraph 8. And we want to look at the, the second half of paragraph 8. We often give much attention, rightly, to the first half of the paragraph. But the second half uh, reads as follows. Speaking of the immediately inspired originals that have been preserved. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. We typically, like I said, give most of our attention to the first half of chapter 1, paragraph 8. But 
in this talk, we want to consider some things that are important about the second half of this, which relate to the significance of accurate and faithful translations of God's word. I remember when I taught through the Baptist Confession of Faith several years ago, how I was struck by the emphasis given here uh, to the fact that believers have a right unto an interest in the scriptures. We talk especially in these days a lot about our as citizens, our freedom of speech or our right to bear arms. But what about our Bible rights? What about our interest in the scriptures, our right unto the scriptures? And so there's a stress here on the fact that every Christian should be given access to the word of God, even if they do not know the scriptures in the original Hebrew and Greek, that they ought to have access to them. The proof text that is given first in the confession relating to this teaching is actually a reference to John chapter 5, verse 39, which begins with the command, search the scriptures. The believer cannot obey this command. He cannot be a Berean believer as in Acts 17 who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things taught by the Apostle Paul were so unless he has access to the word of God. And it's interesting that even that proof text, John chapter 5 verse 39, is itself an example of the importance of accurate translations. Because... Uh, as it appears as a proof text in the Confession of Faith, it assumes that the word there should be translated as a present active imperative. But in modern translations like the ESV, that same passage is now translated not as an imperative, search the scriptures, but as you search the scriptures. It's translated as uh, simply a uh, present active indicative sentence. The verbal form is the same. It could be translated as an imperative or as an indicative. But if you use the modern translations, you should recognize that that represents a departure. To take it as an indicative represents a departure from a translation tradition that the framers of the confession were relying upon. And it offers a slight but not insignificant point of discontinuity with it. The confession makes clear that one can receive the inspired word of God in faithful translations of it, even if he cannot read the immediately inspired originals of Hebrew and of Greek. To read a good translation of the Bible is to read the Bible. Christianity is therefore unlike Islam, which claims that its Quran can only be read and understood in Arabic and not in vernacular translations of it. That said, however, the Protestant Orthodox again also insisted that whereas the originals had a double divine authority and autoritas divina duplex, which we talked about in the last lecture, meaning that they were infallible both in matter, in doctrine, and in form words, the Protestant Orthodox fathers said that translations were only infallible in matter and not in form, in words, because they did not include the original Hebrew and Greek words. But a good translation can be infallible in doctrine, in content. As John Owen put it, 
The beauty and luster of the scriptures shines forth also in all translations so far as they faithfully represent the originals. And that's the Protestant position on translations. They're, they're faithful, they're, they're good, they show the scriptures as long as they faithfully represent the originals. Translation of the Bible has been affirmed in the Christian tradition from the very beginning. Before any New Testament book was ever written, the Hebrew Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, and some of those translations of the Greek Old Testament uh, were quoted in the New Testament itself. Aramaic statements made by the Lord Jesus within the New Testament are even translated for the reader into Greek within the New Testament itself. So in Mark 15, 34, Mark records, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there's translation within the New Testament itself. So there's an affirmation of the work of translation. The New Testament was translated early on into ancient versions, including Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and later into Armenian, Ethiopic, Gothic, and Arabic. With the advent of Jerome's Latin Vulgate in the 5th century, however, the Bible in the originals was largely set aside in the West. But, as we talked about in the last session, with the coming of the Reformation, there was that perfect storm of circumstances that resulted in what we could call the triumph of the received text in printed editions of the originals, and then, from them, vernacular translations among the various nations and languages of Europe, and then later among the various nations and languages of the world. Luther translated the New Testament into German in 1522, adding the Old Testament in 1534. You may have heard that for the New Testament, he relied on the two early editions of Erasmus, and so he omitted the Coma Ioanneum, 1 John 5, 7. And so uh, that passage did not appear in Erasmus's printed edition of the Greek New Testament until his third edition. But after the passing of Luther, his successor, Philip Melanchthon, led the charge for the rehabilitation of the coma into the German Bible, and it was restored and remained there up until modern times. Sometimes critics will point to Luther's early omission of the coma Ioanneum to support their case against its authenticity, but upon reflection we see it actually proves that the exact opposite. It shows the tenacity of God's word, which like a weeble may wobble, but will not fall down. So the Bible entered through translation, faithful translations into the languages and people of Europe, whether it was in French, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, Hungarian, and beyond. In due course of time, of course, it also came into the English tongue. The Bible had been translated into English by John Wycliffe from 1380 to 1397, but that had been from the Latin Vulgate and not the divine originals. Though Wycliffe escaped violent persecution in his life, I think uh, Pastor Christian made mention of this, after his death, his bones were dug up and burned by the Roman Catholic Church. The watershed for the English Bible came in 1526 when William Tyndale was the first to translate the Bible from the original Greek, relying on the third edition of Erasmus, and so not repeating the error of Luther with regard to omission of the coma. 
It is said that Tyndale had developed his passion for translating the scriptures as a young man, once telling an obstinate learned man from the church who denied the Bible's authority, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life ere many year, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. He completed the New Testament in 1526, Tyndale did. By 1530, he had completed his translation of the Pentateuch. And in 1531, he published the book of Jonah. In 1534, he issued a revision of the New Testament. He did not, however, complete his translation of the Old Testament because in 1536, he was betrayed by his enemies and was executed by being burned at the stake, where supposedly his last words were recorded to have been, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. No earthly sovereign could indeed deny God's people their right to search the scriptures. And so a series of English Bibles building on the work of Tyndale soon appeared. In 1537, the Matthews Bible appeared, written under the name Thomas Matthew, which was a nom de plume for Tyndale's friend, John Rogers. Rogers used Tyndale's notes for the unpublished portions of the Old Testament in his work. In 1539, Richard Tavner produced an edition of the Bible. The so-called Great Bible was published in 1539. The Geneva Bible, the first Protestant study Bible with study notes, was published by Marian exiles from Geneva in 1560. And then in 1504, King James I issued a decree that a translation be made of the whole Bible as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek. And this, he said, is to be set out and printed without any marginal notes. He didn't like some of those notes in the Geneva Bible. And only to be used in all churches in time of divine service. 54 men, at least 48 of whom can be historically identified, worked in six companies, two each at Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. It was sent through the press by Dr. Thomas Bilson, and a preface was written by Dr. Miles Smith of Oxford titled The Translator to the Reader, dedicated to King James I, published in 1611. Though it is called, especially in the United Kingdom, the authorized version, there is no historical evidence that it was ever publicly sanctioned as such by king, parliament, or ecclesiastical convocation. Within a few years, however, it had gained its authority, acclamation, and approval among those who speak English by its overwhelming organic usage. Bruce Metzger notes that the New Testament of the King James Version, as it came popularly to be called, followed the Tyndale New Testament exactly in wording in one-third of its content, while the sentences in the remaining two-thirds of its content followed the general pattern of the underlying structure of Tyndale's New Testament. In 1936, Fred, Frederick Kenyon, hardly a KJV onlyist, wrote this about the authorized version. Quote, It is a simple truth that as literature, the English authorized version is superior to the original Greek. It was the good fortune of the English nation that its Bible was produced at a time when the genius of the language for noble prose was at its height, and when a natural sense of style was not infected by self-conscious scholarship. 
The beauty of the language commended the teaching of the sacred books and made them dear to the heart of the people, while it made an indelible and enduring impression alike on literature and popular speech, end quote. This work was not just a translation of the Bible, but a profound cultural artifact that would profoundly shape and influence English-speaking peoples and their churches, and it would become the standard for their liturgical, scholarly, and devotional use across generations up to the present day. It would also serve as a standard throughout the Protestant world for what a Bible should be. And many Protestants from other nations followed its general principles in producing translations of the Bible in their own languages and cultures. This great translation stood unassailed until the late 19th century, when it came under intense criticism alongside of an effort to replace the traditional original text, especially the New Testament scriptures, the Textus Receptus. In 1870, the Convocation of the Province of Canterbury appointed a committee to undertake a revision of the New Testament. The committee came to be dominated by two men, B.F. Westcott and F.H.A. Hort. In 1881, that committee produced a new translation, the revised version of the New Testament, that was based upon a modern critical Greek text that was simultaneously published by Westcott and Hort in the same year. Among other things, their Greek text put brackets around passages like Mark 16, 9 through 20. It removed John 7, 53 through 8, 11 from the Gospel proper and appended it to uh, the end of the Gospel of John. The Old Testament was completed in 1885, the Apocrypha in 1895 of this revised version. Although this version did not, at the time, overthrow the popularity among English-speaking people of the authorized version, the scholarly text of Westcott and Hort, as well as their modern method of textual criticism, was widely embraced by educated pastors and scholars. In 1901, an American edition of the Revised Version was produced under the title The American Standard Version, the ASV. The copyright for the ASV was acquired by the National Council of Churches in 1928, and in 1937, they authorized a new translation that would come to be known as the Revised Standard Version. The New Testament was completed in 1946, the Old Testament in 1952, and the Apocrypha in 1957. There was also some discontent with the Revised Version and even with the RSV that came after it. So in 1971, there was an edition put out called the uh, New American Standard Bible, which was revised in 1995, revised again in 2020. And you may know that John MacArthur, out of displeasure with the gender-inclusive changes in the New American Standard Bible of 2020, got the rights to publish his own edition, now called the Legacy Standard Bible in 2021. In the mid-20th century, a linguistic specialist and translator with the American Bible Society named Eugene Nida developed a theory of Bible translation known as dynamic equivalence, and this was a thought-for-thought method of translation rather than a word-for-word method of translation. One of the first major translations to adopt Nida's approach 
was the old Today's English Version, also known as Good News for Modern Man, in 1966. The first significant evangelical modern translation based on the modern critical text was the New International Version, completed in 1978, revised in 1984, and in 2011. And there was also a controversial gender-inclusive version of the NIV produced in 1995 called Today's New International Version. The first mainstream modern translation based on the traditional text was the New King James Version from Thomas Nelson, edited by Arthur Farstad in 1982. It includes extensive textual notes, but has not been revised since its introduction. Among mainstream Protestants, the RSV was revised in 1989 as the new Revised Standard Version and updated again just recently in 2021 as the NRSVUE, and the UE stands for Updated Edition. Also in 2001, Crossway secured an agreement with the National Council of Churches with undisclosed terms to produce an evangelical version of the RSV under the title of the English Standard Version. And it has become very popular with many Calvinistic and Reformed evangelicals. Stanley Porter has called the ESV a theologically corrected RSV. Alan J. McGregor called the ESV a very mild revision of a very liberal Bible. They produced revised editions of the ESV in 2007 and in 2011. In 2008, they produced the highly hyped ESV Study Bible. I remember attending the Evangelical Theological Society when, they, when that came out, and they were like giving it away like candy uh, to, to folk and were promoting it heavily. Uh, in 2016, they announced they were releasing what they called a permanent text edition of the ESV because people had complained about it changing every couple of years, and there were, it was messing up continuity and usage in churches. But once they get, made that statement, they got backlash from people who said, you ought to be able to change it every couple of years. And so they walked back uh, their statement that the 2016 edition was going to be the permanent text edition. Other popular evangelical translations have included the Holman Christian Standard Bible of 2000, which was put forward by Southern Baptists to avoid having to pay copyright fees to the publishers of the other Bibles. And the title of that book changed uh, in 2017 to the Christian Standard Bible and is apparently growing steadily in its usage. There's also the New Living Translation, produced in 1996, revised in 2004, and in 2015. In addition to translations, uh, uh, in addition to translations, the 20th century also saw the advent of several paraphrases. The first was the Living Bible from Kenneth N. Taylor in 1971, which was based on the ASV of 1901. More recently, PCUSA pastor Eugene Peterson produced the Message Bible between 1993 and 2001, revised in 2018. It has sold millions and has been embraced by no less than Bono of U2. <laughs> That's why you should read it. Uh, in, that was sarcastic. Uh, in his book, How We Got the New Testament, Stanley E. Porter says, quote, there were well over 100 English New Testament translations produced in the 20th century alone, end quote. And that's probably a conservative estimate. 
If anything, the pace has only quickened in the 21st century. My guess is there will be hundreds of translations produced in the 21st century. And it is the, the goal and dream of some, like D.C. Parker, that basically we would have as many Bibles as there are people. That you would just go online and be able to create your own Bible. I called, I compared it to Build-A-Bear. You know that you go to the, you, you create your teddy bear the way you want it. You add these additions to it and you have a, you have a, a, a niche Bible that's just for you. Um, there will probably be hundreds produced. At this point, we might paraphrase Solomon and say, of the making of English Bible translations, there is no end. And what has been the result? Sadly, it would appear that the proliferation of translations has not produced depth or breadth in the Christian movement. But in fact, it seems that it has produced disunity through lack of uniformity. There was a time, I'm old enough to remember it, when Anglicans, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Methodists, and Baptists all used the same translation despite their differences. That unity of biblical usage is now completely gone. Are we the better for it? That's why I suggest as an act of protest against modernity that we abandon all of, of what Theodore Leitus called the Bible landlords and go back to the authorized version. The problem for Tyndale's Plowboy in 2023 is not that he does not have access to the Bible in an English translation. He has hundreds of them at his fingertips on his smartphone. The problem is that he has an avalanche of them offering him a cacophony of discordant voices and approaches too often than not leaving him confused and bewildered rather than enlightened and edified. He needs a Bible that is faithful, trusted, one that doesn't change every few years under the latest revisions. And that plowboy needs the Bible, but he also needs a church. He needs elders to teach him. He needs a church to catechize him. He needs a confession to guide him. Well, having offered something of the lay of the land with respect to the current state of modern translations and having humbly suggested a protest that we might be engaged with against this, let me offer, if I can, I'm looking at the time, I'm not sure how much time I have, but I, I wanted to uh, just talk a little bit about um, what I think are some of the advantages of a classic, using a classic Protestant translation like the authorized version. This would be it could be applied to people who are using the Reina Valera in the Spanish-speaking world, et cetera. But what are some of the advantages? And I want to talk about what are some of the disadvantages of modern text. And if time allows, I might talk about, uh, give you some specific examples of things related to text and translation. So I've got six advantages of using a traditional Protestant translation, like the authorized version. First, I think most importantly, it's based on the traditional text. It's based on in the Old Testament on the Hebrew Masoretic text, 
in the New Testament on the Texas Receptus. This means it's not going to have brackets around Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's not going to have confusing footnotes. It's not going to have brackets around the woman taken in adultery, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. It's going to have at Matthew 6, 13, the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. It's going to include in Luke 23, 34, the intercessory prayer of our Lord, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's going to include the confession of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.37. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's going to include the Coma Ioanneum, 1 John 5, 7 and 8, the three heavenly witnesses passage. So first, that's the first advantage. It's based on the traditional text. Secondly, it will make use of a formal correspondence or a formal equivalence translation philosophy. A, the old style word-for-word -word translation rather than a translation philosophy that has only been around since the mid to late 20th century, the so-called dynamic equivalence translation philosophy. In my article on why uh, I preach from the received text, I noted that as a pastor who was using the NIV initially in my ministry, but who was also reading the Greek text, I noticed discordant places in the NIV that didn't seem to match up with a word-for-word -word rendering of the original text. And I was preaching in particular on John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And in John 5, 29, Christ is speaking about the final resurrection, and he talks about those in the graves who will hear his voice, and it says in John 5, 29, and come out, those, this is the NIV, and those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And I noticed that phrasing, will rise to live and will rise to be condemned. And I looked at it in my Greek text, and I saw that in John 5, 29, the Greek text, there are two perfectly parallel prepositional phrases. The first, ice anastasin zoes, into the resurrection of life or unto the resurrection of life. The second one, eis anastasin chryseos, unto the resurrection of judgment, or the resurrection of condemnation. Look back at the NIV. Will rise to live, will rise to be condemned. Then I looked at the authorized version. And in John, in John 5, 29, it reads, and they shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that AV is a better translation. It corresponds formally to what the original says. Even somebody who can't read Greek or Hebrew has access through this faithful translation to the underlying words. Third of six reasons. A good Protestant translation, like the AV, uses a variety of expressions for the same underlying original word in the text. Words in Hebrew and Greek have a range of semantic meaning based on context. Sometimes modern translations, in an effort to be more literal, woodenly translate the same Hebrew and Greek words with the same English word. To do this, however, they often produce translations that are repetitive and pedantic, but they also forfeit the nuances of one word having various shades of meaning. Fourth, the classic Protestant translations like the AV 
will offer discreet, prudent, and reverent renderings, but not at the price of accuracy. Let me just give you one example of this. In the authorized version, there's a phrase that appears in the Old Testament that accurately renders exactly what the Hebrew text says. And it's a description of a man, particularly as a warrior, as he that pisseth against the wall. That's what it says in the Hebrew. But modern translations, out of a misplaced effort to mute the blue language, cover up the graphic nature of the original expression. So if you read 2 Kings 9.8 in the King James Version, it says, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. The ESV cleans it up for us so we don't have to hear anything naughty. And it renders it, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male. Technically that's true, but you lose something there when you don't get at what he's saying. He, he wants to stress the maleness of those who will be cut off because they're the warriors, the, 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 the fighters. They're the ones who are going to be cut off. And so there's, a, there's an accuracy about the King James Version that doesn't shy away from telling us the graphic nature of the content. That makes sense. Fifth, it makes distinctions between singular and plural uh, pronouns. This is the genius of the use of ye and the, the, the use of you. Ye being the second person plural nominative and you being the second person plural accusative. And also thou, the second person singular nominative and thee, the second person singular accusative. And so what this allows you to do, because we have one word in English, you, and it could be singular or plural. It can be nominative or it can be accusative. But even if you don't know Greek, if you understand, and I know Pastor Christian has written about this, did an online written debate about it with someone and pointed out the value of it. But even if you can't read Greek and you look at Matthew 5.13 and you read that Christ says, ye are the salt of the earth, you know that ye is going to be the second person nominative plural. And you know that what he's saying there is something that he's speaking to all the disciples and he's saying what we would say in our southern parlance, y'all are the salt of the earth, even if you can't speak Greek. Six, it makes use of italics to indicate words and terms supplied by the translator which do not rest on a corresponding underlying word in the original text. An example of this is 2 Corinthians 5.17. In the authorized version, it reads, Therefore, if any man be, the be is in italic, in Christ, he is, that's in italic, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The italic is there to tell you that a translation is made not dependent upon an underlying corresponding word in the original. And so even if you can't read Greek, when you read that in the authorized version, you can get some sense of the staccato style that was there from the pen of Paul. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And you might think, therefore, if any man in Christ, new creature. And it, it enriches, enhances your reading and understanding of the text. We should note that sometimes the italic in the authorized version are used for other purposes, specifically to alert the reader to a passage where the text has perhaps been challenged. 
We see this in John 8, 6, as though he heard them not. And also in some editions, I don't think the TBS does this any longer, where they put in italic 1 John 2, 23b, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let me speak now, if I can, to six disadvantages or liabilities of the innovations that one sometimes finds in modern translations. The first is some modern translations use capitalization of the divine pronoun. So when there's a reference to God and the word he is used, uh, they will capitalize that. This convention, however, simply does not appear in the original manuscripts. There are places, in fact, where it is uncertain whether a pronoun is referring to God or to a man. To capitalize or not capitalize then is a translational interpretive decision that is being made. This can become particularly confusing in the Psalms where one must decide if the reference is to David or to Christ. And in some cases, it's a reference to both. So do you capitalize or not? There's also one notorious example in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. In the authorized version, it reads, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he, with a lowercase h, who now letteth will let until he, lowercase h, be taken out of the way. But in the New King James Version, it reads, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he, capitalized H, who now restrains will do so until he, capitalized H, is taken out of the way. There's an interpretation being read into the passage that God is the referent for the pronoun he. However, that might not be the case. It may be that it's a, it's a reference to human agency, and not to directly to divine agency. And so there's a particular kind of interpretation that appears in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. Uh, second, um, yeah, I'm on the second uh, disadvantage. There could also be a problem with modern translations that set the text in poetic form. The authorized version puts the text in block format even in places like the Psalms. Some modern translations will set parts of the text off in different uh, print setting to indicate to the reader that it is poetry. And sometimes in the, some of the Psalms, of course, it is poetry, but there, there are decisions that are made about this and other parts of the text that might be confusing. An example can be found in the New International Version setting of the so-called Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It centers the text and adds indentation to create what looks like poetic lines. This is probably, however, influenced by an older modern scholarly theory that this passage was an early Christian hymn, a pre-Pauline hymn that Paul had incorporated into the letter. This, however, is nowhere made explicit in the passage and is merely an interpretive suggestion. So it is probably better to leave it in a prose format rather than to impose a poetic interpretation upon it. Third, there is a problem with modern translations sometimes with interpretive decisions relating to the provision of quotation marks 
to indicate direct speech. The authorized version does not use quotation marks to set apart direct speech. Again, it conveys, according to formal correspondence, the text as it appears in the original. There are, of course, natural indicators that convey when direct speech or quoted speech is recorded that can be understood without question marks. So in John 8, 12, it reads, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. Of course, that's a quotation, but there are no quotation marks used in the AV. The New King James, for example, puts it in quotation marks, puts quotation marks over it. That works okay in some places like John 8, 12, but there are others where it's unclear where the quotation ends. One example might be found in John 3.27, which introduces a citation from John the Baptist. John answered and said, and then the New King James and other translations put quotation marks there. But where does the quotation end? Where is the statement from John? Where does it end? And when you get to the end of John chapter 3, in particular, you get to John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Was that part of the quotation from John the Baptist, or is that a statement added by John the Apostle? Uh, so an interpretive decision is made in putting these quotation marks, and it's not always clear uh, where those quotations should end. Fourth problem with modern translations is they often make interpretive decisions, and this is increasingly so as time goes on, related to gender inclusivity. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.26, in the authorized version, it says, Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss, properly reflecting that the underlying word for brethren, tus adelphus, is the accusative plural of the noun ha adelphos a brother, in this case, a plural accuser, the brethren. But in the New Revised Standard Version, it reads, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. The, the original language doesn't say brothers and sisters. Of course, the word brethren is an inclusive term. It means Christian brothers and Christian sisters. But it's going beyond what is written to at every point where there's a masculine referent to Christian brothers that you have to add brothers and sisters. And it, uh, again, just reflects really the spirit of this age. We see this creep creeping in other places, even in the ESV, which supposedly many thinks, uh, thought in the beginning, it reflected a more complementarian view of translation. But in Romans 2.28, whereas in the King James Version, it reads, reflecting properly the original Greek, for he is not a Jew. In the ESV, it says, for uh, no one is a Jew, using no one rather than he. In Romans 3, 4, in the authorized version, it says, let God be true, but every man a liar. ESV says, let God be true, though every one were a liar. And so there's a, there's a constant tendency in modern translations to try to take away anything that is specifically indicative of the masculine in particular. Fifth example of, uh, of a downside to modern translations is that they present paratextual interpretive material. These include paragraph or section headings. It also includes interpretive directions, sometimes added by the translator that might be confused with the text itself. 
I teach a survey of the New Testament class, and I have my students do journals. I allow them some latitude to use different translations, and I can't tell you how many times I've had students report that this, my Bible says this, and they quote the editorial heading from their modern Bible. And they don't understand the difference between that editorial heading and what the text of Scripture itself is. A notorious example of this in my mind is the, the layout in many modern printings of the New King James Version from Thomas Nelson of the Song of Solomon, where in some of these printings, they put throughout the Song of Solomon what looked like dramatic script notes introducing each uh, part of the text, and it puts them in all capitals, the Shulamite, the Beloved, the Daughters of Jerusalem. Other than the fact that these stage directions are placed in all capital letters and a bit smaller font, the reader is never explicitly told that these are uninspired editorial editions which are not part of the original text of the book. Six, and related to number five, some modern translations have also begun to experiment with altering the traditional order of the books, especially in the Old Testament. I recently noticed this in two new translations, both of which arrange the Old Testament books in the order usually found in Jewish Bibles, placing the books in the order of Torah, Nebim, and Ketuvim, or the the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, so that the last book of the Old Testament is Second Chronicles and not Malachi. I saw this in a 2022 translation made in the UK called The Keys of the Kingdom Bible. And more recently, I saw someone tweet out about a new translation that's called simply the Hebrew Scriptures. And I saw the tweet from a professor at a Reformed seminary who tweeted out about the book, I hope other Bible translation publishers will follow their uh, model. So that's some advantage, some disadvantage. I'm looking at the time. Um, I, let me see if I can just briefly cover uh, a bit more. I want to talk a little bit about some problems related to text and then a few problems related to translation. I'll try to go quickly through this. Um, related to text. Overall, there are major concerns affecting the accuracy of the Bible related to the text from which the translations are made. A significant area of concern at present is the trend in Old Testament textual criticism to reconstruct the Old Testament text and correct the Hebrew, as they see it, using the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Syriac or the Samaritan Pentateuch. The English Standard Version has added, for example, a half verse placed in brackets at Psalm 145, verse 13, to supposedly correct a broken acrostic. If you look at Psalm 145, it has 21 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. An acrostic is when you have a poem where each line begins with a different succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 145 is a broken acrostic in that one of those letters of the alphabet doesn't have a verse, and it's been accepted as such by Jews and Christians for millennia. In 2001, when the ESV came out, however, they attempted to correct this psalm by adding that extra verse based on one extant Hebrew manuscript and the reading of the Septuagint. 
Never had a Protestant Bible had that, that half verse in it until 2001. At Deuteronomy 32.8, the English Standard Version now reads at the end of that verse, the sons of God, based on readings found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, rather than the children of Israel, as it appears in the Authorized Version following the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text. I recently did a podcast on this issue, citing an online article that was posted on a website at um, Brigham Young University, celebrating this change and noting the approval of the Brigham Young University Mormon professor who now serves as one of the editors of the Biblia Hebraica Quinta, a scholarly edition of the Hebrew Old Testament that will affect later Christian translations of the Bible. They were celebrating this because they liked theologically the idea of a mention of sons of God rather than children of Israel. Again, the trend is to suggest that the Septuagint has some sort of normative authority for correcting the Hebrew Bible. And this is being advocated today even by Reformed and Evangelical scholars. But it's out of step with the Protestant consensus. John Owen, for example, refuted efforts in his own day to correct the Hebrew by using the Septuagint, noting, strange that so corrupt a stream should be judged a fit means to cleanse the fountain. Of course, there are many places in the New Testament where the modern text differs from the traditional received text. We usually think of the verses that the modern text removes, and rightly so. We've got that wonderful uh, text-critical key that TBS publishes that shows you all the missing passages in our New Testament. Over 600 are listed there, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, actually. Um, but there's also another issue, because in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, there's a warning against taking away from Scripture, but there's also a warning against adding to Scripture. And I think... If we, as we continue on this current trajectory where we have Bibles influenced by modern textual criticism, I think we're likely to see a trend toward more inclusion of spurious passages in the name of providing the most expansive windows into early Christianity. Let me cite three examples. First, we have a passage known as the shorter ending of Mark. Though it only appears in a handful, and I mean a handful, six or seven, late Greek manuscripts, and is clearly a spurious edition, it is now beginning to be printed within modern translations, often inserted between verses eight and nine. This so-called shorter ending reads in the New Revised Standard Version where it's placed between verses eight and nine, and all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter, and afterward Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. This appears not only again in the mainline New Revised Standard Version, but it also appears in the footnotes of the English Standard Version, and most strikingly, it appears in the text proper of the New Living Translation that was produced in 2015. That's an evangelical Bible. Overall, before the late 20th century, as far as I know, this spurious passage had never appeared in an evangelical or Protestant Bible. And now it's regularly being printed within some. The Legacy Standard Bible that came out in 2021 that I mentioned earlier, put out by John MacArthur, adds one more bizarre twist in that it ends Mark with Mark 16, 9 through 20 in brackets, and then after that, it puts in brackets and italics 
the so-called shorter ending. Not between verses 8 and 9, but after verse 20. This apparently follows the decisions that were made by the updated NASB 2020. Now we have a spurious passage that is literally the last word in that gospel. And there is no single extant manuscript anywhere in the world, Greek manuscript, that has the shorter ending at the end of verse 20. Not a single uh, witness to it. Secondly, I'll, tell you, I'll give you three examples. Secondly, there's a curious edition that is found in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, the twin darlings of modern textual criticism. It's, a, it's in the Gospel of Matthew at Matthew 27, verse 49, where these words are inserted. But another, taking a spear, pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. This appears to have been borrowed from John 19, 34, where such a statement, Christ being pierced in the side, outcoming water and blood, appears in the text proper. But in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, it's inserted in Matthew's Gospel at 27, 49, and it comes before the description of the death of our Lord in Matthew 27, 50. Scholars rarely give much attention to differences like this because I think they realize it would decrease the level of confidence one might have in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus as giving us an accurate reflection of what the New Testament is. Last example of a spurious text that might one day be in your evangelical Bible would be another pericope, not the pericope adulteri, but a passage known by scholars as the Cambridge pericope, found at Luke chapter 6, verse 4, named the Cambridge pericope because it appears in Codex Bezae, which was given as a gift from Theodore Beza to uh, Cambridge and is kept there. It reads, on the same day he saw a man working on the Sabbath and said to him, man, if you know what you are doing, you are blessed, but if you do not know, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. That translation comes from Metzger's textual commentary. Who knows if this might one day appear in some future maximalist text or translation of the Bible. Think it can't? Check out the shorter ending of Mark. You see, one of the values of a standard text is not only what it helps to retain, but also what it keeps out. It keeps out the spurious passages. Um, hmm. I think I was going to give you some examples of translation, but I think I'm not going to have the, the time that will allow me to do that. Uh, so um, maybe I'll put, turn this in an article at some point. It can be read. Well, friends, uh, we have considered today, uh, well, in this conference, the authority of Scripture. We've considered the inspiration of Scripture. We've considered the authenticity of Scripture. And now uh, we have attempted to understand the importance of the accuracy of Scripture, especially as it relates to translations which grant to believers the inherent right that they possess as blood-bought saints and co-heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a right to search the Scriptures. We have seen, I think, that there is great merit in walking in the old paths, in sticking to the old text, and in using the old translations. We need the Bible. 
It is essential for life and godliness. In 1 Corinthians 14.8, it says, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? The trumpet was a military instrument. It communicated commands and instructions to the army as a whole and to each individual soldier. It had to give a sound that was loud and clear. God's word is like that trumpet. His text, his word, translations of it, sound forth like a trumpet for all with ears to hear. Now our friends were saying, you're making too much of this whole issue. Don't you think that people can be saved reading the NIV or the ESV or whatever? And we would say, of course. Remember what Owen said, a translation is good to the degree that, that it faithfully reports what's in the original. But don't you want to read what is the best, what is true? Now, the, the Lord can use whatever means he pleases. The, the first church that I pastored, uh, I had a man that lived across the street from me, across the road from me. And he didn't come to my church. His son came to my church and um, he became my friend. And um, one day he and I went to, uh, drove together to a funeral service of somebody in our community who had passed away. And I was talking with him. And I was always inviting him to church. And he said, uh, he said, Pastor, I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a secret. He said, he said, I can't read. I said, okay. I, I said, we, I still would like for you to come to our church. He said, he said, I can't read. And I said, I'm, he said, I'm afraid if I go to your church, I'll, I'll go into a class and somebody will call on me to read a passage from the Bible. And I said, I'm the pastor of the church. I promise you, if you come, I will not call upon you to read a passage. I said, and, and, and we had a men's Sunday school class, and one of my deacons was the teacher of it, a, f a farmer in our community. I said, I'm going to call Bobby. You know Bobby? I'm going to call him, and I'm gonna sh if it's okay, I'm going to share the secret with him. I'm going to tell him not to call on you to read anything. And, and he also he said he didn't want to have to pray out loud. Too. I said, I'll tell him not to call on you to pray. And so what happened? He showed up at our church, and he attended for weeks and months and he couldn't read the Bible he did not know how to read but he heard us reading it and he heard us preaching it he heard us talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and he came to the faith and he was baptized he was joined to the people of God God is pleased to, to, to move as he wishes he can work above beyond he uses whatever means he pleases. And so one's literacy level is not a barrier to coming to the faith. But those are extraordinary circumstances. And even in those circumstances, we were reading and faithfully preaching the word. And so let us be dependent upon the Bible, that trumpet and that sound that goes out to all the earth. Amen.